let me tell you what the depressing part was. Up until that time, we always kept saying, my son will have a fantastic life. Like we would do everything to make sure my son has a fantastic life. My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me the chance to learn about the many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients, parents, and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian type bondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Subscribe to the Raising Rare podcast to hear the story unfold. Last time you were telling us about a company that was willing to allow you to use their experimental drug to try to see what it would do for Ragav. And you did a lot of work with them to, to convince them of that. You did a lot of work to understand why this would be the right drug to use. Can you tell me about what that process was like as you got into the conversation with them? We went down there to the company and uh, I met with them. We, we, had, we had a lot of conversation. And one of the questions that I asked them was, why are you even interested in giving the drug to my son? Here you have a, a small pharma company. They have their own trials that they're going, on, going through. With every person that they add on to their cohorts, with every person that takes their drug, there is a potential risk of something unrelated to the drug happening, an adverse event. That's what they call it. And the adverse event could potentially, you know, slow down their paths to going to FDA to get to the drug approved. Uh, and it's a big risk to the company because it takes a, a lot of money and effort and time to convince the FDA that the adverse event was unrelated to the drug. And so I asked them what motivated them to, to, to give the drug. And they said it was me. It was just me. Like they were, they were motivated because I, I was motivated. And I asked them for it and I convinced them that this is worth it and they're supposed to give it, give the drug to us. And so that was a good sort of a reaffirmation of, of the kind of activities and activities that I'd been doing and, and the way I'd been organizing things and way, the way we had been approaching the problem in general. After they said yes to give the drug, then the process is someone needs to write a paperwork to FDA. So it's a, it's a document, it's a letter that you write to the FDA to say this drug is in theory known to work for this condition, for this gene. Uh, and that's called the expanded access petition. So it's a very, very simple form. It's actually a one page form that you fill out, but the appendix to the form, uh, in the appendix to the form, you explain the science behind it. You explain the craziness of the disease and how debilitating it is. You explain how safe the medication is and you explain why you think 
according to the literature, um, the medication would help this this disease. And you also explain the risk benefit trade off here. It, it, it's a, it's sort of a, a convincing letter that you sent to the FDA. It's, it's typically written by our physicians. Spoke with the company. I said, "Hey, I need to get this drug to my son by the end of next month. What do you think we can do here? Give me the roadmap. I'll I'll, I'll execute on this." And uh, the person from the company said, "I like your optimism, but it doesn't happen that quickly." And I said, "You know, what? what why, why wouldn't it happen quickly? It should happen quickly. It just seems like a letter that you write. We have all the information together, which we already have. Someone just needs to write the letter. Um, it's typically done by the physician. Uh, it goes through the hospital's policies and stuff like that. The, the person that I was talking to at the company, she gave me the higher level overview of what steps that are needed to actually get this thing filed to the FDA and get the drug to my son. So that gave me a starting point to work with. But then I realized that there are plenty of moving parts here, moving parts that are beyond my control. And one of the, one of the key moving parts there was this letter itself. Like my physician has to spend, I don't know, 10, 20 hours of his time writing this letter, reading about the literature, reading about the disease, reading about the drug. All physicians are busy and my physician is no exception to this. And they don't get paid to any of this, to do any of this work. They don't get a week off. So you can go write drug house IND right now. They have to do their clinical work. They have to do all the other commitments they have. And then on top of that, spend the nights and weekends writing this letter. I told my physician, I'm interested in taking the first stab at it because obviously he doesn't have time. I don't have anything else to do, but to find a treatment for my son. So I'll take a first stab at it. And then I spoke with a consultant who used to write a lot of INDs. And then she gave me a template that I can get started on. And this was Thanksgiving. This was all before Thanksgiving. Ramya and I decided to take a vacation because it was super stressful at home. We decided that, you know, it's not going to work. We need some break. So we went to, uh, we went to the Bay area to meet one of our friends there. And right before the day we were flying out, we found a house that we could purchase that was going to work for us. So we said, okay, let's put an offer on the house. That morning when we flew out, we said, now that we are on vacation, we have three full days of time. Why don't we take a stab at writing the IND? <laughs> so we went to our friend's place. Um, I started writing the IND paperwork. Ramya was writing, uh, Ramya was trying to purchase a house and she would ping me on, on, uh, on chat and be like, yeah, they want X number of dollars for the house. So I was like, yeah, do it. Uh, so that's how we ended up purchasing our house. And in the three days, I also wrote the IND. It was one of the most depressing things I've ever done in my life is writing that IND paperwork. I can imagine it was depressing. I can, I can feel for you um, having actually done that in my career, you know, writing INDs. It's very dry. It's very, it's very scientific and clinical. It doesn't, it's not like your, your heart's out there on it. But it's also, it's, it's so much information that you need to pull together. None of those were depressing. Let me tell you what the depressing part was. Up until that time, we always kept saying, my son will have a fantastic life. Like we would do everything to make sure my son has a fantastic life. Now in this paperwork, I am writing in plain English with my own hands that my son is going to die and give me a medication for my son. My three days of vacation went this way. I would start writing 
a paragraph of, of why my son's condition is brutal. I would look up the literature on, you know, results about loss of GPX4 in mice and they talk about kidney failures and paralysis and I'd copy and paste those and start having references there. And I would write a little bit more about how the drug could help and I have to go back and write more about how, how my son's condition is bad. I would write a paragraph, I would sit on the desk, uh, close my eyes and like take 10 minutes of, of a break and then I start writing again and, and it, it, is, it is the most depressing thing I've ever done. But now I've gotten numb to the fact that I can write IND, so I can write INDs all day long. But I, I would just, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I told other rare disease communities that, hey, if you ever want to write your own IND, I know how to write it. I can help you do it. But it's really depressing. But at the end of the day, if, if I have to do that to find a treatment for my son, I'll do it. The stark reality that, 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 that you just talked about is, 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 is striking to actually have to write that. And you can see why it's hard for someone that's, that's this close to, to do that. And the fact that you're willing to help others because you can be just one little step away from it, um, I think is fantastic. Where does that lie right now? It's still in the paperwork stage. We are hoping to get it through in the next couple of weeks. What I did not anticipate was how long the administrative side of things would take. Um, so it's, we haven't said it to the FDA yet, but along the way, you have to get your hospital or your academic institution to buy into what is, this, what is called a research study. So even though they are technically treating my son with a, with a drug, but it's, an, it's, an, it's a drug that's not approved. So a doctor in their power cannot write a prescription for this drug. So it's, it's technically a research study and my son is a research subject. Back uh, in the day after World War II, I think, when the Germans did a lot of bad things to test, medic, test things on humans, um, there was a huge uprising and they created the system called the Institutional Review Board. Now you know why I don't like the word board. Um, so they created a system called the Institutional Review Board. It's, it's, a, it's a great system which protects humans' interest and makes sure Anything that is done on a human uh, that is not approved by the FDA has to go through a ton of process and oversight. So you, you, you would submit a protocol and say, here's how I plan to work with this drug on this kid. It is what's called a consent form that the parents would sign and agree to and understand what's going on. And the hospital or the academic institutions, IRB, is supposed to review these things and say yes. So it took us a long time and you could talk to everybody and they'll tell IRBs take long times to execute on and to approve these things because I mean, they should be right. They, they shouldn't be approving paperwork like this all day long because it's, it's affecting humans and a mistake there could be catastrophic. It, it could stall the whole system down. So they are doing their job right. But I did not, I did not anticipate how long this would take. So after we, re we, I wrote the IND, we reviewed that with a physician. So now we are in a shape that we can actually file for, uh, we can actually send it to the FDA for approval. Uh, and once the FDA approves it, it's a, it's a small matter of, you know, logistics to get the medication to the pharmacy local here and then give it to my son. If I were to go back in time and do it differently, I would focus a lot more on building relationships with someone from the IRB. 
So I understand the process. I understand the holdout. So we don't go back and forth on silly things. So we, we submit the paperwork and, you know, it goes into the queue, they get it processed and it comes out approved. And that would have saved a couple of months. IRBs have only a few actions they can take. They can say, yes, you're approved. Go forward. No, you're not approved. Or we'd like some modifications. And, and the modifications are the things that take the time to go back and forth on. Because that's an answer that says, yes, we want to help you do this, but, but there's some things we have some concerns about. So it is a, a process that I don't think many people see. They, they don't quite understand how that could be, um, but, but you explain the history of it. This goes all the way back to the Holocaust. And actually, IRBs are, are a critical part of the way we do medical research, but all sorts of research, anything on a human subject to ensure that it's being done ethically, that the benefit risk is it's the right balance so that there, that there is a benefit to be seen for the risk. And they'll try to minimize the risk wherever they can. I'm really interested to know if you've talked to anybody at the FDA, letting them know this is coming or having your, your small biotech company have their regulatory affairs people sort of sort of pave the way and say, we've got something coming here. We would like a quicker turnaround if we could get it than the typical 30 days? We have not. Um, we could. But from, from, uh, from what I gather from other people, FDA typically turns it around in a few days. Um, they've, they've usually done it faster than 30 days is what I hear. I kind of feel like the FDA would be the faster one here just because you know, people that I've done in the last few months have had the same experience. So I, I, w- I wouldn't think it's, a, it's too different. I've spoken to people in the FDA about other things, but not specifically about this, this petition itself. It wouldn't be your place to have to talk to the FDA, particularly the medical reviewers that'll look at it. But the company you're working with, they should have a relationship with someone who's looking at their product already um, because they're running clinical trials. And they should be able to talk to them and say, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. So they're poised for it. I think it would really help you uh, maybe get it done even sooner than, than, than the four days. And it certainly would make it more certain that they would do it early on in their, their review cycle. So this is just a remarkable story. You've taken the, the focus, the control, the motivation, and the talent to, to do this. People don't realize that the length of time that you could have taken beyond what you found with the IRBs. But it also points out that little bit of education of knowing what's coming in the next five steps and where is that bottleneck is critical uh, because that way you can, you can avoid the bottleneck. You can make sure that, that you're the first in line for that bottleneck, you know, so that everything else pushes you through. So it'd be worthwhile talking about. So what happens after the IND gets approved, you start getting the drug, which you probably won't have to go to the pharmacy to get, it will be delivered to you or to your physician, depending on, on how they're going to be administering it. So it'll come straight through there, saves a step there. But then what happens on the reporting side and what happens as things go on? What responsibilities are you going to be taking on? So have you guys, you must have written up a protocol? Yes, we did. So we will be monitoring him every three months. And there's a whole panel of blood work. I I don't think we're doing MRIs, um, but we might be doing x-rays. There's a whole panel of tests that we will be doing on him every three months to see uh, the progress that, that he's making. 
and, and also make sure there's no you know regression in any of the any of the vitals there we'll, we'll keep a close eye on eye on that i think it's going to be a fascinating story to say after we start on the on the, on the experimental drug i really hope my son would make exceptional progress um in in, in his physical strength so it's exciting when we start an experimental therapy because we have all the hopes there but it's only time that can tell us what exactly will happen so we we will be monitoring him every 3 months i am also hoping to get a few biomarkers um hopefully detected by that by then it i, I don't know if it's possible but we do want to track what happens before and after administering the drug so so we can actually look at the, the things that actually change because of the drug um so we have some study that we are trying to start to to detect oxidative stress biomarkers in the blood and depending on how the study goes um we might have some data to convincingly say that this drug is working or not my guess is there are measures of oxidative stress that are already out there and and validated what people don't know is but what happens within gpx4 or within ssmd how does this uh play out and what do those markers look like it's a, it's it's challenging cuz you're just going to you're going to have your n of 1 and and you'll see them change or not i had a question about your the the monitoring plan so the visit that you will have every 3 months is that out of the ordinary for what his normal physician visits would be or is it something that could be incorporated right into his normal treatment plan it is out of the ordinary because he would visit a physician every week i i think it would be a part of the normal like treatment plan because you know he has several doctors visits every week happening um so we'll just squeeze into there um but but the but the panel of tests that we will be doing might be uh, out of the ordinary and we might also have to send some samples back to the company because they have very specific tests um their drugs efficacy on on uh, on bodies right uh, so we have to send some samples back to them so they can do their panels as well. um so they can monitor things on their end will monitor vitals and stability on um and together this should give us a good direction good indication of how how the how the drug is acting and how well it's working so with with a drug there is always three possibilities one is it could work really well like it just hits it out of the park my son is walking and running that's one possibility the second possibility is it does nothing it's safe the third possibility is the worst possibility in my mind is it's weakly working so it's like borderline working right so you you see some improvement um, but it's not hitting it out of the park the question is okay so what is it actually doing here uh, should we continue the drug should we stop the drug can we supplement it with something else to boost its power those sort of questions come into the picture um so the the first and the second are very black and white to 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 work um so in my research plan we focus on the third third problem which is okay let's say let's assume the drug is weakly acting it's working it's showing some differences but it's not phenomenal what can we do what can we add on to it to for the with a completely different mechanism of action to maybe boost the drug's activity or to to reduce the bad actors in the body so the drug can do its job well i uh, we have some activities in the pipeline where we are going to test a few combination of drugs um on on mouse model and on all the combinations um this experimental drug will be there as as one of them and we will add on something to it um so we can test the efficacy of things together not just is- in isolate 
this is a different sort of study design compared to what people typically do. Um, and this came about because we uh, could understand what the value of the models are, um, because we thought a model is a, a shadow of a human. It needs to do whatever is whatever we do in the human. Um, so rather than being scientific about it and testing one drug at a time, we said, screw the methodology. We want to have something that is close enough to the human. So we actually are doing what um, is, is different from a normal scientific methodology, but still more representative of the human. That approach actually is, 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 is something that's used in the oncology world quite a bit. You're doing this in a mouse model, and the scientists that you're working with, I know, will be smart enough to say, we can have different cocktails with and without that drug, and we'll be able to do statistical designs to say what's going on. I'm sure that you'll, you'll get some insights there, but you, you said something very important. It's a mouse. It's a shadow of a human. They are different, and it will give you insights, and then you'll have to say, so what's the strategy? What's the right clinical strategy to, to try this out? Which leads me to a whole different line of discussion that we don't have for today, but doing what you do and what your background is, have you looked into AI methods for understanding the research on those various things that may come up with insights before you do the experiment? So AI or any, any computer technique is good at analyzing data. So once you have the data, it's really good at analyzing data, right? So you need to give it uh, some data to analyze. Um, and what people typically do is, you know, they look at the internet and say, oh yeah, there's so much literature, there's so much data, let's go mine the literature, let's go mine the data and find insights out of it. But AI or machine learning can only draw patterns from the data you provide. So if there is a bias in the data or if there's a hole in the data, it cannot patch it. And it can certainly not find new information that is not there in the existing data. So when we talk about using AI or, or machine learning or any sort of computational techniques, the first thing we should talk about is what the data is. In my case, there is a lot of literature and I used a, a, a machine that's more powerful than a computer, which is a human, mine the literature and, and identify 36 drugs that we could repurpose. And uh, the, the machine can find probably hundreds of these drugs, but there's no point in them. It cannot tell me what's going to happen with a combination of two drugs. It cannot because the data doesn't exist. It cannot find it out. So for my purposes, for the majority of the, of the work that I'm doing, the data does not exist. So a computational technique is not going to work. If you'd like to follow Raghav's story, please subscribe to Raising Rare.